the further you go in this, the more expensive it can get. And the biggest problem with how much travel hockey has exploded because everybody wants jerseys and socks to say that they play for this team or that team. We have literally demolished the house league industry. And to me, the house league industry for a rink probably generates more money than travel does. And the house league industry can incorporate more kids into it because if you've got a really good rec league, the sky's the limit on how many kids you can get into it and the formats that you can use. I mean, you could have your full ice house league. You could have a cross ice three on three house league. You can do anything you want and get creative to get more kids playing at what I would consider dead hours of ice time. So I think that's another factor that we've got to get a little more creative in how we regulate and administrate our game. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dave Starman national TV and radio game and studio analyst for college hockey and the world juniors. Dave Starman is entering his 20th year at CBS Sports Network as college hockey's lead national analyst and his 15th year as the analyst for Team USA's games on NHL Network at the World Junior Championships and his 11th with ESPN as an analyst for their coverage on the NCAA Men's National Tournament for Ice Hockey, the Frozen Four. Dave is married to three-time Michigan Emmy Award winner Shireen Sasky, and they are currently the only husband and wife on-air tandem working on the same broadcast crew. Dave is a Level 5 USA Hockey Masters coach and has been an instructor for USA Hockey's coaching education and player development program for 25 years. His coaching career has included 8U through the AAA level of professional hockey. Dave was part of the original coaching staff of the expansion Macon Whoopie in 1996 when the Central Hockey League, the CHL, expanded from 6 to 10 teams and he was also the associate head coach from 1996 to 1999. He became the youngest head coach in CHL history when he took over the Memphis River Kings midway through the 99-2000 season. Dave is a former NHL scout, having spent 11 years with Toronto, Montreal, and most recently with Seattle. Currently, he's the director of player development for the Long Beach Lightning in Long Beach, New York, the hometown of NHL defenseman Charlie McAvoy. He's also the goalie coach for the Long Beach Sharks of the NA3HL and does a series of hockey IQ vignettes for the coaches site, an international hockey coaching platform called The Breakdown with Dave Starman. You may recall we had Aaron Wilbur, the founder of the coaches site, on our show, episode 71. Listen in for some great takeaways about Dave's love of the game of hockey and why it is the best sport around and the future of the game. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of having Dave Starman, national TV and radio game and studio analyst for both the World Juniors and college hockey. And everybody knows 
I love talking hockey, so this is going to be a great show, and I look forward to having you. And welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. It's always good to talk hockey, whether it be the NHL, college, junior. It's the great game that we both love, so I'm looking forward to chatting about it. I love it, and it's definitely a lot better than talking about money because people tune out for that. So we'll talk about hockey. (laughs) So listen, I know who you are. I know your background. I know a lot about you, but for those listeners that may not know about your background and what got you to where you are today, can you share with our audience a little bit about who Dave Starman is, how you got to where you are today in your path? Yeah, I was an incredibly average goalie coming up through the youth hockey system here in New York City. And at that time, this was like the 70s and 80s. The cool thing is, when I first started playing, Lou Vero, who wound up coaching our 1984 Olympic team, and Lou's become an old friend. I consider Lou right now the godfather of American hockey. And Lou was... I believe he just got inducted into the New York State Hall of Fame. Was that Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah, within the last year or two, for sure. And he's in the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, and he should be in the NHL Hall of Fame. And the great untold story about Lou is his contribution to the 1980 Olympic team and what he did in Lake Placid with Herb and that kind of thing. But Lou's an institution in the hockey world, and I got to play for Lou as a mite. So I thought that that's pretty neat. That's a good start. Came up through New York, obviously ice hockey, roller hockey, that kind of thing. And I played a couple years of D3 college hockey and got injured and was trying to put together a comeback. And here's the funniest thing. Through a series of accidents, I wound up in Baltimore with Kenny Albert doing radio as he was doing play-by-play. And Kenny and I had known each other a little bit through the New York media world. And it's funny too, because when I was there, there was always the opportunity to practice with the team, which I did once in a while when a goalie wasn't available. And Barry Trotz was our assistant coach. And Barry's a longtime NHL guy, Stanley Cup winner. Barry kind of took me under his wing a bit and sort of taught me the ins and outs of doing a pregame film and postgame breakdown and how to do a pre-scout and doing some scouting stuff with individual players. So that was kind of neat. And at the same time, Joel Quenville, who got three cups to his credit, Joel was finishing his pro career. So he was playing defense for us. And he was always in the video room picking Barry's brain because Joel knew that he wanted to coach. And, and our head coach was Robbie Laird, who I think had been twice the IHL coach of the year. So like, I was around some really good people there. And then in Washington, which is our affiliate, Jack Button was our head scout. Jack was a legend in the scouting community. As a matter of fact, he was one of the guys that helped put that 1980 Olympic team together along with Rudy Migay. Those are two guys that don't get a lot of credit for that. So I've got Jack Button on the scouting side. I've got Barry between pregame scout, postgame video, some individual breakdown stuff, practice planning. I've got Joel Quenville in there after 800 NHL games. I've got Kenny, who was on his way to becoming a legend and had some pedigree. Like, I was in a really good place to get a career started. Those are a lot of good names to get started, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was just in the right place at the right time, and all those guys had a really neat impact on what eventually became my career. And I've been lucky enough to have done a lot of things. I mean, I've coached from 8U all the way up to the AAA level of the minor leagues. I've been a head coach and an assistant coach at the pro level, which is great. I've been a head coach and an assistant coach at the junior level, which has been great. And I really had the experience of coming up through youth hockey. And I was in and around 8U when USA Hockey launched the American Development Model, the ADM, when we really turned youth hockey around 180 degrees and and made it so much better and really made it what it is today. So I'm very lucky to have been with a lot of really good people at a lot of really kind of revolutionary times in my career. And that's one of the major reasons why I think that I've been able to do very well in the on-ice component. And then the broadcast side is just, this has been the most unique thing ever. Like I said, I did a couple of years with Kenny on radio and now going to my 20th year with CBS Sports Network doing college hockey on their national package. It's been quite a ride. That's amazing. And listen, talk about being in the right places at the right time. It sounds like with those names around you, 
you have to succeed with those guys around you. I mean, they're the backbone of hockey. I mean, great names. No question. And Barry was always great. He had a great dry sense of humor, but he loved to talk hockey. There was nothing better than sitting next to him at the rink or over a meal or on a bus or whatever. But I mean, he just loved talking about the game. And when I was there in Baltimore that first year, that was his first year as a pro coach. He'd done some scouting before, but that was his first year. I love looking back and knowing that I was at his debut as a pro head coach, which was the following season after Robbie Laird was dismissed. All right. Well, Dave, great, great pedigree, great people to be around. And you have done the World Juniors broadcast for years. I mean, that's something that's a staple in my house. We have a tendency, if we're up in the Lake Placid area, to head up there if they're playing the USA-Canada game on New Year's Eve. That's always a fun time. What has that event taught you, and what have you learned from it over the years when it relates to hockey? That the predictable is unpredictable, and vice versa. It's an amazing tournament. Those kids write the greatest script for us every year. And I've had a lot of different play-by-play partners that I've worked that tournament with. And and it's funny because we've all just basically agreed that when it's over, we look back and we say, wow, I cannot believe what we just watched, whether it be Team USA or any of the other teams. I mean, these are the elite 18, 19-year-olds in the world playing against each other. And a lot of these kids have played against each other in their birth year groups for a long time. So there have been some age-old grudges that have been built up through time, whether it be the U18s or the Five Nation Tournament or the Holinka, whatever the case is. These kids know each other pretty well, and it's a three-week think tank, which is the beauty of it. And that's the thing I love about the World Juniors is that no matter how busy I could be with everything else going on in my life, whether it be family or regular work or whatever, hockey work, when the World Juniors clicks in, you literally turn off the world and you focus in on that. And it's a lot of daily interactions with our coaching staff. It's a lot of daily interactions with a lot of scouts and assistant GMs and GMs that are at the games. And you're talking to people to gather information. You're watching practices. And through eight of those World Juniors, I was scouting professionally also, four with Toronto and four with Montreal. So I'm like, I'm with a lot of my colleagues, and we're just talking about the players. You learn so much from the opinions and observations of some of the legendary minds in the game because they're all at the World Juniors. So to me, those experiences have been unbelievable. And then on the historical side, being in Saskatoon when we beat Canada 5-4 in overtime on a goal by John Carlson in the gold medal game, That might have been one of the greatest events that I've ever been at. I own Stanley Cups and Ranger Stanley Cups and great playoffs through the NHL through my career and a lot of great college hockey games and Frozen Fours. But the U.S. beating Canada in Saskatoon and quieting that building down the way it did and one of the more improbable victories I've ever seen, Like to me, that was the launching of the United States as a member of the Big Five when it comes to World Junior play. Wow. So why do you think that tournament is so unpredictable? You said that's like the biggest takeaway. Why do you think that is? Because they're kids and they're in the middle of their season. So you just never know. Bob Motzko, who's the coach of the University of Minnesota, once said to me, and he was quoting a coach of his, and he said to me, your emotional elevator is always going up or down, but it's never even. The World Juniors might be the greatest example of that comment that I've ever seen. Because with a lot of these kids, remember every team for the most part, Every player on that team has been the best player on their team somewhere and more than likely might still be the best player on their team coming to that tournament. But all of a sudden, you may get a guy that's a first-line center on a college team that comes to that team, and all of a sudden, they hand on the fourth-line centerman's job and pray that he's going to buy into that role and play it. Now, the teams that have won gold, a lot of that's happened. But I've been around some teams where they didn't do very well, and it's because the buy-in wasn't there. Guys' egos got in the way. 
or outside influences got in the way, or some kid's agent was telling them, well, you deserve to be playing second line minutes, not third line minutes. And they start buying into it and it just goes south and become kind of an energy drainer and a little bit of a cancer in the room. And it happens to every team. And the Russians, if they ever get let back into this thing again, I mean, the Russians are the most unpredictable thing because they could lay it up for four games and all of a sudden turn into world beaters, or they could be world beaters in the first round and then disappear in the middle round. I mean, they are so unique. The Finns are scrappy with hard skill. The Swedes are incredibly skilled, but not necessarily that tough. Canada is always real good, but you just never know with them if it's going to be their year or not. I mean, they are very hit or miss at this tournament. So you can always predict that the big five, four of those teams should be playing on gold medal January 5th. But by no means do I ever go into that tournament ever thinking that I've got any idea who's going to win it. So this past year, right, we had a little bit of a different circumstance in the World Juniors in 2022 in the year, right? Because they were played in the summertime rather than in the wintertime because of COVID. Do you think that that really changed things up as far as the experience for the tournament? Do you think it was better, worse, or the same environment as a result? I think that they had to play it. I think it was important to get it done, and I give them credit for doing it. I think it was a failure in terms of gripping the attention of the hockey-playing world when they played it. I really thought that with the World Juniors going on and no other hockey going on, that this is going to be a massive hot-button topic. It wasn't. And I noticed it just by social media stuff. Like Usually when the World Juniors is going, the hockey Twitter world is a buzz. It really wasn't. And I know a lot of people who weren't watching games. The games in the East Coast were on at 10 o'clock at night. And I don't know a lot of people on a really nice weekend night in the summer when it's 90 degrees out are going to be home watching the U.S. play Latvia. It's just not a draw. So I know once they moved into the metal round, it got a little bit better attendance-wise on site. But, I mean, there was nobody in the building. It was a really hard sell. I think that the players and the teams competed hard. But I don't think that if you were ever looking for a test balloon of whether or not the World Juniors can work as a summer event preseason versus a winter event midseason, this was your example that you can't do it in August. It's got to stay where it is. There you go. Yeah, I agree. Listen, I'm one of the few I was actually up and watching anyway, but I'll watch hockey any time of year. So it doesn't matter to me. I'm not the person you're trying to attract. You're trying to attract (laughs) the new eyeballs to the game who maybe don't understand or don't have that passion for it. So listen, let's shift for a minute to youth sports because World Juniors, I think to some degree is a culmination for a lot of these kids in terms of youth sports. And I think there's an underlying reason and underlying talent and things why kids play youth sports. What do you think the benefit is for kids to learn from youth sports, especially the sport of hockey? I think youth sports is a microcosm of the rest of your life and everything that goes into it are all the things that are going to make you successful later on because so many components factor into your everyday professional life. Number one is you've got to learn to get along with other people and work as a group because no matter what you do, even if you're in an individual type position, you're still working within a group dynamic. So I think that's number one. You really learn how to work with other people and become a teammate. And I think becoming a good teammate is a really important factor in Becoming a good friend, becoming a good partner, becoming a good employee, becoming a good boss, you've got to learn how to work with other people. And you've got to learn that sometimes the objectives of the group supersede the objectives of the individual. And you've got things that you can contribute to the group, but all of your contributions aren't what makes the group what it is. Some of them will be taken, some of them won't. And you've got to learn that some of what you contribute is going to get left on the editing room floor. 
And that's through no disparaging of you. That's just the way it works. There's only so many ideas that a group can go with. And if you get one in there, you know, good for you. But you've also got to learn how to support the other ideas that are coming up. So that's part of it. I think the work hard, work smart is always a buzzword that I've had. And I think youth sports teaches you that because there's that old saying, don't mistake effort for execution. I think you really learn that in sports. Like, you can work as hard as you want, but if you're not working smart, what are you doing? And you've seen the movie Weekend at Bernie's, right? And there's that great scene where they're sitting up on the roof, and one of them says, well, if you keep working hard, we'll move up in the company. And the other one says, my father worked hard, and all I did was give him more work. And I always tell that to players. You've got to make sure that you're putting the grind component in. You're getting the hard yards done, but what's your end game? What's your why? What are you doing it all for? So working hard, working smart becomes another component. And I also think that youth sports presents a lot of adversity for kids. Sometimes they don't even understand the adversity they're going through, but as they get older, and we've got kids that have gone through that, I think that being able to look in the mirror and stare out into the abyss and not sure what you're seeing back is a really good thing for young people. Because my favorite expression, the one thing I always tell both of my kids is, figure it out. And I think that we're in an age right now, and there's a great article that just came out in the New York Times about this very concept where it's almost like the kids have become the parents. They're driving the bus. There's a part where the parents have to step back and say, hey, you figure this out. So you do it. Like, we'll be here to pick up the pieces, but how do you get to a better place in your lineup right now? Like, how do you get ahead of the player in front of you? You got to start figuring some things out for yourself. And I think that as parents, I think as youth hockey administrators, as youth hockey coaches, we owe it to our players to give them an opportunity to face some adversity and figure out how to get out of it. Yeah, I agree. Great life lessons for sure. And I have to ask you this because I've asked other hockey people this same question in terms of we were talking about youth sports. And I think all your points really kind of go across the whole spectrum of youth sports, period. It doesn't matter what sport. But to some degree, I feel that hockey presents itself as a little bit different than a lot of the other youth sports. And a lot of people that I've talked to who've played from professional to college to men's league, wherever, they also feel that way. Is there a reason why you think that hockey has that different feel, different dynamic as a youth sport and is a little bit different than perhaps football, soccer, or baseball? I'll start with this answer. I know a lot of friends of mine that play men's league now. And listen, we're one way or another, we're all going to the men's league. I say that all the time. All roads lead to men's league. Doesn't matter where exactly. you start, where you end, it's going to end up in men's league for sure. Absolutely. Yes. Some of us take a little longer to get there, but we're all going to get there eventually. How many other sports do you know where you're playing men's league hockey or you're playing your sport at 1.30 in the morning? It doesn't happen in any other sport other than ours. That's why our sport is so unique. The passion that people have who play this game, that's why they'll go play a men's league game at 1.30 in the morning. It's unbelievable. And I think that hockey players are in a different realm because of this. First of all, it's not like baseball where there's a million fields. Like You don't need a real field to go play baseball. You can make one. You just need the space. For basketball, it's a little different. There are courts all over the place. You can always go find a court. Football, you can play three-on-three or four-on-four. You can play in the street with your friends. For an organized practice, once again, you just need a big open field. You don't necessarily need lines and markers and all that kind of stuff. And you only need goalposts as you get older because you're working on the kicking game with your kicker. And for hockey, you need a rink. Now, I know you can go play outdoors, but not everywhere. Like You can't go into the frozen ponds of Florida and go play ice hockey, right? So the frozen pond component is only there for part of our hockey playing population. For some of it, it's not. So you're talking about a group of people that can be driving an hour to get to practice and an hour back. And in that hour, it could be a true 60 miles somewhere in Minnesota to go an hour to practice, or it could be on Long Island where the rink can be 10 minutes away, and it's still going to take you an hour because of traffic. I mean, whatever the case is, you're talking about parents that are making huge commitments and kids that are making huge time commitments just to get to the rink. 
to practice or to play. Then you've got the whole dynamic of travel teams and where these teams are going and traveling all over the place through snowstorms and blizzards and all kinds of cold weather and 6 a.m. games and 7 a.m. games and tournaments and two games in a day or three at the youth level. I mean, it's just a whole different animal. These are uniquely odd people that I think <laughs> fall in love with this game, but I consider myself one of them. And I don't know a lot of other sports parents that you know go through the rigmarole that the hockey parents do. I'm in the same boat as you, and those are interesting perspectives. So for parents who are looking to have their kids involved with youth sports, right? And one of the things that I've seen and I've heard from other families in the hockey community, and my family has encountered it along the line too, in terms of that challenging coach, right? Sometimes it may be a parent coach who maybe has their own agenda, maybe not the most skilled hockey person, but they were the only one left in the room when they asked for volunteers, so they got assigned with it. For parents who are facing challenges with a coach, I mean a legitimate challenge, not the nonsense that you and I have probably heard over the years, like a legitimate challenge. What kind of advice do you have for parents who are facing those challenges in terms of their kids and staying involved with the sport? I think that's a great question. And you're right. Challenges come in a number of shapes and forms. And there are a couple of things that I've often talked to parents about. Number one is you bring up a really good point about the parent coach component. And I'm a little bit on the other side of the parent coach thing. A lot of people talk about they don't want parent coaches. There are a lot of parents out there that are coaching teams that were coaches long before they were parents. I'm one of them. And I was always an assistant on a lot of my son's teams. I never wanted to be a head coach on his team. And I was usually like a second assistant. Like on the bench, I would be correcting mistakes or talking to players. I was more the macro than the micro. I didn't run the forwards. I didn't run the defense. I just wanted to be a door opener. That's it. That's not bad either. <laughs> but listen, it's better than sitting on the stands and being frustrated. Right? You hear the chatter. But I think that when it comes to the parents and some of the complaints that they have, there's two things. Number one is take the emotion out of the complaint. That's number one. I'm a big believer in the 24-hour rule. If you're mad at the coach on Sunday, you're better off talking to them on Tuesday. Because by the time you talk to them on Tuesday, more than likely, you've probably talked to some people who you respect and ran the problem through them and gotten some different opinions. And you may wind up with a friend who actually gave you an opinion that you didn't want to hear because you might be wrong. And those are important to hear too. So there are times where by the time you get to that conversation, you've almost gone through the conversation nine or 10 times. You've gotten a few different opinions and you realize that your opinion might not be the right one. So that's a great way to go into that argument or go into that discussion. I also think that the problems that you have sometimes get magnified by the ego. So your kid's not playing as much as one of the other kids and you're not happy about it because it's an ego thing. Oh, how could his kid be playing more than my kid? You know, that kind of thing. There are times where you've got to sometimes step back and say, hey, kid that's playing a little bit more, and this is more of the older ages than the younger, but that kid that might be playing a little bit more might be a little bit better. And the challenge for your kid now is what do we do to make you better? And this goes along my entire coaching philosophy, and that is block out the white noise. Don't worry about how much everybody else is playing or not playing. You worry about how much you're playing. And if you want to play more, you've got to figure out a way to get past the player that's in front of you. Like that to me is the challenge. So if I'm the parent, my challenge to the parent is and sit with the coach. And I think once you get past 15, it's got to be player and coach and get the parent out of there. There you go. That was where I was going next. When you mentioned the older players at that point, and I didn't know what your definition of older is, but I agree. 14, 15 at that point, it's the player's responsibility. It was always my son's responsibility. If he had an issue, I would defer back and say, hey, listen, coach has an open door. You don't go to him today after the game, but Tuesday, if the game was on Tuesday, 
you could ask them to chat for a few minutes and see what you need to do to get to that next level. What can I do to get there? And then you got to put in the hard work after you ask the questions if you want to get there, right? You're bang on. Absolutely. And so that's part of it. And I think that in these meetings, it's really good for the player to get in the coach's ear and say, okay, just like you just said, what do I need to do to play more? And those conversations are great. I think most coaches want those conversations. I did when I was at the youth level. I want a player to come into my office and say, why am I not playing? Because that opens up the door. If I had somehow omitted talking to that player about what I want more from them, now they've brought it up. So now we can have a great dialogue. And I got to tell you what, when you have those discussions as the coach, you're now keeping an eye on that kid a whole lot more because that kid had the gumption to come into your office and challenge you for more ice time. I've had players throw skates through walls when I've told them they've been scratched. I have players that knock things over off my desk. I mean, I like that in a player. That's what I want. So I think it's a really good thing. And I'll give you a story. My 13-year-old at the time was getting a little frustrated about lack of playing time. It was his first year at Tier 1, and Aaron Ashton was his head coach, and Garth Snow was the assistant. And I was on that team, too, as kind of a second assistant. So, but I said to Ryan, I said, I'm out of this. I said, I'll sit in there. You drive the meeting. And he basically said to both guys, why am I not playing as much as some of the other guys? And they went through some of the things. Well, we want to see a little bit more aggression from you on the ice. We want to see a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. And from that moment on, it lit a fire under him that he needed. So he needed to hear the true honesty of the coaches. And a lot of players sometimes don't want to hear that. And a lot of parents sometimes don't want to hear the truth that something's missing. But I'm a big believer on a broadcast side, as a former player, as a coach, whatever, I want feedback. I want criticism. I want to know what I have to do to get better. Even at this stage of my career, I want to know what I have to do to get ahead of those guys on national who are doing NHL games so I can do them too. I want to know. And I think for players and parents, it's important to hear the truth. And it's really important for the coach to be very, very honest and not tell them what they want to hear, but tell them what they have to hear. Yeah, I like that. I think that's great advice. And obviously, hockey has a different process, if you will, than a lot of other youth sports in terms of the progression. If you want to go past like the high school level or the youth sports level, what do you think it's important for families of young hockey players to know about that process? That's another really good question. First, of all, I'll tell you this, collegehockeyinc.com might be the best resource for any family that is even endeavoring towards playing college hockey. We had Mike Snee on our show. His show went live or will be live in November of 2022, and he's involved with College Hockey Inc. So thank you for promoting his episode as well. Yeah, Mike's been an old friend. Like I was around when College Hockey Inc. started back when Paul Kelly went from the NHLPA to be the president of that. And I watched that organization grow. So College Hockey Inc. is a really good resource. And I think for a lot of families, there's a lot that they don't know. And there's a lot that they don't know they don't know. So it's important to ask questions. And then you get the part two. There are so many shysters in this business that are just looking to drain money out of people's pockets, as opposed to really being able to deliver anything to them. So I do think that as you get into this, building a network of trustworthy people that you can rely on is really important. And generally, it starts in your own organization. And there's got to be somebody in your organization that more than likely has tested the waters of higher levels, and they'll have a friend, and they'll have a friend kind of thing. And that's how you build up this informational network of people that you can ask questions to. But you really need to do your research, you really need to do your homework, and you really need to be in the know in terms of what's out there as the next step, because there's a million different paths. Yes, more every day, I feel like. <laughs> oh, and that's become part of the problem. Like, I'm really lucky. Like, I lived this, I've worked it the whole bit, but I was having a great conversation with Brad Berry, the head coach of the University of North Dakota, because we both have 05s, and we've always talked about how the other kid's doing, and 
taken an interest in the other guy's kid. And it's been great to hear the stories as they've both grown up through their careers. And we were talking the other day in Minneapolis and Brad and I both were looking at each other like, but it's really neat to go through this process as a hockey dad. We have been the guidepost to so many young players. We have both put so many young players to the next level and mentored them and coached them and helped them and their families. But now like kind of we're going through it as they went through it. And we both shared some stories about how much we reach out to people that we trust for information. Because the last thing I want to do is be the guy that advocates for my own kid in the hockey world with my position in it. Because it just doesn't look right. So he's got to make it on his own. And he's got his small group of people that are kind of his support group. And they will help him and get his name into people's ears or whatever. I stay out of it. But it's really important for people, I think, to build a network of good informational people that they can rely on that aren't going to lie to them. Yeah, great advice. I agree. We've done that over the years. And definitely College Hockey Inc., I think, is probably one of the best at kind of outlining what that path potentially could look like and the different arms off of the original path as far as the directions you can go and what you can do and what you can't do so you don't end up in trouble. And those personal references and recommendations for folks are very important. Before I start talking to you a little bit about college hockey, one of the things I saw you post recently is in reference to practice to game ratio at the youth level, right? Talking about how it should really be this two to one ratio. A lot of the teams would rather go play four games in a weekend. And rather than doing that, maybe at the younger levels, they should block out a weekend and do more practicing. Why do you think that is so important? I mean, I agree with you, but why do you think that that is so vitally important? Back when the ADM was launched, Hockey Canada came out with a study, and the study concluded through a tremendous amount of research, and it's a data-driven research project. And USA actually backed it up with a similar project of their own, and the video is on YouTube. You can find it. But they figured out that it takes 11 games to replicate one practice in terms of puck touches coaches' feedback, actual ice time, kinesthetic movement, the whole bit. All those things that are so vital to player development that you get in practice, it would take 11 games to replicate that. That's an amazing number. And it's funny because Eric Lang is the coach at AIC, and Eric played for me as a junior player. And I remember he talking to him on Saturday morning. He's like, I'm about to drive. His son, I think, was eight or nine. He goes, I'm about to drive three and a half hours to watch my kid play three 12-minute periods. So I'm going to drive three and a half hours to watch my kid play 12 minutes. And that's happening all the time. It's just, it's ridiculous. So the one thing that when I was the PAL Junior Islanders myself, a coach named Tommy Mitchell has been a longtime youth hockey coach and his dad was too. And Peter and Chris Ferraro, we came up with a model for our tier one teams on the Junior Islander side that we were going to block out one weekend a month. And what we were going to take the game slots and we were going to turn them into practice slots. And what we did was we had one practice and each team was doing it. Each age group at the tier one level was doing it. So the team would practice. Then they'd come off and they'd do kind of a team bonding activity type of thing. And they would do a team meal. Then they would do an off ice because there was a great gym at the rink we had. And then they would go back on ice and do a secondary practice. But the practices were really skill development oriented, small game oriented, small station oriented. Maybe got into some flow and some game situational stuff later on with the older teams. And then there were times where we just said, okay, for the next 20 minutes, we're here on the ice as coaches. What do you want to work on? I want to work on my turns. I want to work on my shooting. So it's okay. So, hey, who the guys who want to shoot, you come down here with me. The guys who want to work on stick handling and deceptive movement, you're going to go down there with Aaron or whatever. So we would split the ice up that way and we'd cross-pollinate the coaches so that different coaches from different teams were working with different players. So what are the benefits? You're getting a tremendous amount of ice time over two days, right? You're getting three sessions where you're on the ice the entire session. You're getting a good off-ice workout. 
you're hanging out with your teammates, your parents aren't traveling. Because most parents, as you know, have multiple kids playing on different teams. You drop the kid off at the rink at 9 a.m., they're there till 5, and they're fed. So this was the beauty of our plan, and I'm telling you, I think it's the model, and I think most teams should be doing it. We played to rave reviews, and there were a lot of parents that were really angry when it stopped. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well... Hopefully they reconsider and start bringing that back and it filters out through other parts of the country because I agree. I think that would be very helpful and great for the game. So what are your thoughts about the future of college hockey? Where do you see it going from here? I see it expanding. That's the great thing. You know, you got Lindenwood and Stonehill and Augustana, LIU just came in. I mean, you've got some new programs that are coming in, which is great because over the years we're starting to lose some. You know, we lost Kent State and Fairfield and Wayne State's, we lost some good programs, but we've gotten some programs back. So I think that's a great thing. There's a lot of talk about different teams trying to do the feasibility study to see whether or not they can put a team out there. My former alma mater is doing one of them, Binghamton University, where I played. I know they're doing a feasibility study as we speak. And they're in a perfect location to be part of Atlantic Hockey, right? They would fit in perfectly to what Atlantic Hockey's model is. And that would be terrific. And UNLV has had a great success at the club level. Arizona's had great success at the club level. Two teams that had great success at the club that are now D1. You're talking about Penn State and Arizona State. So sometimes real good club hockey could be the dry run for having good Division One hockey. And I've heard teams along the lines of the University of Maryland possibly be. Other teams in the Big Ten. Illinois was in there for a while. I'm not sure what's ever happened. Iowa, to me, is a natural with five USHL teams in the state. So I'm hoping that part of the Sun Belt and the Southwest can grip this. So the Pac-12, I think the SEC is tailor-made for this because of the incredible popularity of minor league hockey in the South. And I was part of it for five years between the Atlanta Knights, the Macon Whoopi, and the Memphis River Kings. Like I got to watch hockey in the South work and see packed buildings and see the passion for it. So my feeling is the future is going to be more expansion. And I'm just very intrigued as to whether or not the Big Ten gets more members in, whether or not the SEC can form, and where the Pac-12 goes. Interesting. I just heard this weekend on the professional level, total aside, but talking about Southwest, I think I read that Anson Carter's doing like a little bit of an interest kind of bringing back an NHL team to Atlanta. He's trying to garner interest and investment there. So that'll be interesting to see if that ends up getting any headway attached to it. I'll tell you what, I loved being part of the Atlanta Knights. Hockey in Atlanta was great. I worked for Scott Mellonby, who was a thrasher, and he said he really enjoyed the experience of pro hockey in the city of Atlanta. Atlanta's a very funny sports market. It's really, it's hard to explain. It's like it's a great city, and it's a great college football city, and it's an okay pro sports city. Like, they like the Falcons, they don't love them. They really like the Braves, but they're so used to them being successful, it's almost like everybody's gotten jaded. The Hawks, it's weird. Like when I was with the Knights, we outdrew the Hawks at times. I'm telling you, it's a weird pro sports city, but I'd love to see Atlanta with pro hockey. I don't know. He has an interest. Maybe he sees something we don't see, but we'll have to see how that happens. So I really think that you and I share the same thinking about hockey and that it's such a great sport. So how do we grow the game? I know one of the things that I'm involved with in helping to grow the game, specifically here on Long Island, is I'm on the board of the Peconic Hockey Foundation. We're trying to get a rink out in Riverhead to help alleviate some of that driving for those families who live east of the rinks and having them drive an hour if they want to play. But what do you see as the key to growing the game of hockey? Well, you just hit it. I think there's a couple things. Number one, specific to certain areas, you need more rinks. 
And I've always used the Blaine Super Rink as a great example. In Blaine, Minnesota, which is on the northern part of the Twin Cities, is an eight-rink facility with an incredible state-of-the-art workout area and a health clinic right next door to it, about 18 million soccer fields. The size of this facility between the soccer fields, the rink, and everything else is probably bigger than the barrier island of Long Beach. And I don't know if you've got that kind of room on the island to build that kind of a facility in Nassau County, for sure. Suffolk, you probably do. But the bottom line is, between those eight rinks and another four that are in Blaine, that's 12 rinks in one town. Long Island doesn't have 12 rinks, and that's a problem. So right now, we've got way too many teams and not enough ice time to support those teams, and I think a lot of poor utilization of our ice time. So that, to me, is the problem on Long Island, I think, where our model has gone off the rinks. But how do we grow the game? First of all, I do think we need more rinks. That's a big part of it. But even more important than that, this game has got to get less expensive. That is a huge thing. And I know somebody once brought up this concept of the NHL should buy the equipment companies that are out there now, since they're not making a lot of money anyway. They should buy the equipment companies so they can regulate the prices so that we can get more kids into equipment cheaper, get them on the ice cheaper, and get them on the ice, not at 9.30 at night. So that's where we need more rinks. So I I think that in the area where you want to make it grassroots, you need more availability of ice, you need cheaper equipment, and that to me is the start of how to grow the game. Because one thing that we have shown through the ADM is that player retention is up. So we have fixed the problem of losing players. Now, if you want to continue to grow the game, you got to make sure this game is affordable. Because right now, the economics, I think, are the number one reason why a kid and a family choose a certain sport for their kids, depending on where they live. Yeah, and it's not just the economics of the equipment and the ice time. It's the economics of the travel, the hotels, and everything else on top of that, which some people forget about when they start entering that. I laugh sometimes because I see Rangers and the Islanders learn to skate. They outfit them for 250 bucks or whatever, all equipment head to toe, and then they get whatever five or 10 sessions. And the reality is, to your point, the parents, that's a great experience for the parents. Not that expensive. They get the equipment. They get the ice time. The problem is if they don't understand what's on the other side of that, when that runs out and then they have to start paying and footing their own bill, that's where you could start losing some people because it's not going to be 250 bucks under the current setup going forward. And that's an issue. Then you get into the private lessons and that kind of thing. And equipment, when you're growing up, it's like clothes. I mean, it's got to get replaced every, probably a good for a pair of skates a year. And sticks are, it's not like when you and I were younger and played where... $20 wood Sherwoods, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. 50 Your 30s. Sherwood 50-30. <laughs> there so, you go. I mean, I remember my first dozen sticks that I got in college, the dozen was 210 bucks. Yep. So I think that the economic component that I brought up and the one that you brought up are really good factors. Like it's the further you go in this, the more expensive it can get. And the biggest problem with how much travel hockey has exploded because everybody wants jerseys and socks to say that they play for this team or that team. We have literally demolished the house league industry. And to me, the house league industry for a rink probably generates more money than travel does. And the house league industry can incorporate more kids into it because if you've got a really good rec league, the sky's the limit on how many kids you can get into it and the formats that you can use. I mean, you could have your full ice house league. You could have a cross ice three on three house league. You can do anything you want and get creative to get more kids playing at what I would consider dead hours of ice time. So I think that's another factor that we've got to get a little more creative in how we regulate and administrate our game. Yeah, I agree. So one of the things that you talked about, in addition to your involvement with hockey, you mentioned your son earlier, you're a hockey dad. So you're a parent too of a son that plays the game. And it doesn't matter if you have a son or a daughter, you're just a parent of a player. 
What has been on that side? You kind of talked a little bit about it with your interaction with the North Dakota coach, right? But what have you learned from being on that side of it and being a hockey dad? What has that taught you about the game and about the experience? Does it give you a different perspective to some degree? It taught me a lot. It taught me that I am so happy that my dad wasn't a hockey player because if I had to deal with him the way Ryan has to deal with me, I would have bailed out when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) I could be a little tough on him at times, but he knows it comes from a good place. But the thing that I tried to do is over the last couple of years where I've just been a hockey dad is I've tried to be more on the support side than the coaching side. He and I will do a lot of video together and he'll always come to me and say, Hey, can you send me a couple of clips of this and mark them up and just let me know what you're seeing? Or can you send me some stuff so I can tell you what I'm seeing? So we've still got that. But on the other side of it, I can't tell you how much fun it is to sit in the stands with some of the other parents every once in a while. And it's great to get to the rink five minutes before the game as opposed to 90 minutes. And so we're kind of enjoying just watching him be him. I think that's the best way to describe it is is just watching him play. And some games are good and some games are not. The coach in me gets frustrated when I see some of the things that I think can be done better, but I keep it inside. And after the game, I ask him two questions. How was the game? And how did you like your game? And then wherever else he wants to take it, he takes it. And that's become the nice part about being the hockey dad, because all those years as both a hockey dad and one of his coaches, it was a little different in terms of the dynamic of how we handled kind of the post-game debrief. Yeah. Listen, I love that as well. I love the answer to it because I feel exactly the same way. I don't even have to go over the film with him because he goes on Instat after his game and gets all his clips. And he looks at it himself and he's own worst critic. Occasionally he'll say, hey, can you take a look at this clip with me and tell me what you see and ask me if I'm thinking something differently. But 99% of the time he's handling, I just ask him, how do you think you did? How do you think you played? How did you feel? And that was it. And wherever he wants to take it from there, I'll have the conversation with him, but I'm not analyzing his game or anything like that. I leave that between him and his coaches to have that conversation. He just called me today. His coaches pulled him in for a one-on-one meeting. They just wanted to ask him what he felt he was good at, what could need improvement, if he had any questions, and he kind of told them through it, walked them through his thought process, and they were like, wow, you're very self-aware because those were the three things we were going to hit on with you. So I think those are great things that our players should have, and I love probably the best thing of what you said is I don't have to show up an hour and a half before the game. I walk in with my (laughs) coffee five minutes before, and I'm there, and we're just ready to go, which is hugely beneficial and makes the experience a lot more enjoyable for sure. Here's the funny thing. I noticed that last year too, when Ryan was with the New England Wolves, whether or not I agree with what the coach is doing or not, I generally will have the coaches back no matter what. So when I hear there's always going to be some parent griping and I've kind of feel like at this point in my career, if I can head that off at the pass, I try to. And last year I was successful to some extent. And, but I also feel like I could call up a coach and I could say, okay, hey, listen, I've walked this mile. Here's what's buzzing on the parent side. And I'm not going to say who. Here's what's kind of buzzing around a little bit. So just be prepared to nip something in the bud or this might be coming your way. And just here's what I'm hearing. So like, I don't mind playing that role. I think it helps both sides because it creates a very safe and confidential conduit between two groups that have vested interests, but from a different perspective. The other beauty is, is that last year, Ryan was playing for an organization that was owned by Akito Played For Me. 
So there was a comfort and a trust level there. And the funniest thing is the guy that was coaching him, I had met him when he was two years old because his grandfather was an off-ice official for the Devils when I first started the business. So I thought that was kind of unique. And then this year, he's playing for the New Jersey Titans. He's playing for George Haviland Jr. I've known Mike Haviland forever during his time with CC. You know, we were doing a lot of his games on the CBS Sports Network. And, and I coached against Mike when I was younger. But the bottom line is I coached against their father when I first started. So watching George Havlin coach my kid, knowing that I coached against his dad 35 years ago, I think is really, really neat. I'm extremely fortunate that I'm a hockey dad two years in two different organizations where there's some history with the ownership and the coach. So the trust fact, I go to sleep at night knowing very well that the guy that's running the ship belongs where he is. Well, I think one of your marketing efforts coming up should be a new board game, the six degrees of hockey separation of Dave Starman. But well, listen, Dave, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we ask each of our guests the same question because we're all about joy on this show. And that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Oh, God, I wish you'd asked me that yesterday. Today's been a rough one, but what have I done? Let's see. I'll tell you what, this is going to sound corny, but I got a chance to talk about the game that I love with you for an hour. That's something that actually has turned my day around. So I'll give you credit for that. I will tell you this though, Marty St. Louis now the coach of the Canadians. Marty and I were together in St. Louis this summer because both of our kids were in Dubuque's USHL camp. His kids play there. And Marty and I had a great conversation while we were working out in the gym together. And he said to me, he said, Dave, I was never the best player on my team, but I was always the best player at getting better. And my motto has always been, like we talked about before, pass the player in front of you. So my motto has always been, like, what am I going to do today to get better? And that's what brings me joy during the course of the day is, what have I done today to get better? I'm an avid reader. I started a great book this morning before I came in here. I had an unbelievable cardio workout before I got to my office. And I'm working in a family business that's been here for 100 years that my family's owned. Awesome. So I walk in here with a lot of pride. Yeah, and a lot of joy today. I don't know what you're talking about. You got to get a gratitude journal, Dave. You got to start writing these things down so you know exactly what's going on. Absolutely. So if if that answers your question, I guess that's any day I could walk into my office and know that my great-great-grandfather probably sat in the same spot that I'm sitting in right now. That's kind of a thing that makes you smile. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you for taking the time out for being on the show. If people want to learn more about you, connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? We'll have all your information in the show notes, but What's the easiest and best way for them to do that? I try to retweet a lot of really good stuff that I see out there so that other people can see it. I like to be the conduit to share it. So on Twitter, I'm at DStarmanHockey. And on Instagram, I think I'm at DStarman1. And those are really the two outlets when I find really, really good stuff. I try to put it out there. And occasionally, I might opine. (laughs) about how I think hockey can get better, and I'll throw those out there too. There you go. Well, listen, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. I love the game of hockey and keep up with the great announcing. We love hearing you when we watch those college games and World Junior games, and make it a great day. Absolutely, Larry. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. I want to thank Dave Starman for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Dave is clearly passionate about the game of hockey. He has been involved in the sport for 25-plus years and has seen the game evolve over that time. Dave has experienced the game as a player, broadcaster, and now a hockey dad. Dave's impact on the youth of hockey through his coaching, broadcasting, and involvement with USA Hockey is immeasurable. But I know it has been and will continue to be huge. Dave can be found across most social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. 
make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.